Hi, my name is Sue Nelson, and I'm in the Tech Talk studios all on my own. Uh, we're into the uh, to the new year now, 2018. I don't know what's uh, I don't know what this new year's got in store for us. It can't be more momentous than 2017, but maybe it will be. You never know. Um, I want to share with you some of the highlights of 2017 and uh, all the guests that have, have inspired us and I've learned so much. Um, so this is the second of our two programmes of favourite bits um, and I'd like you to listen again to uh, <laughs> the incredible Jeremy Sosabowski, um, Debbie Forster of Tech Talent Charter, a really important uh, project I think, Eric Staff, um, Aftab Malhotra and really interesting insights into how government works with Navrosa Lada. Uh, let's listen to that again and see what you think. But the real essence of the real thing that you feel quite strongly about is that so many people are looking at the past yeah. to try and predict the future, which is absolute nonsense in your view. Is that thank fair you. to say? Thank you for that one. Just a tiny bit of background on the company, um, yeah. Algo Dynamics. So it is risk forecasting. So uh, mostly selling to banks, uh, pension funds, telling them things are about to go very bad or about to go very good. So that's what we do, risk forecasting. You must be rich then, Jeremy, if you know this stuff. We're doing okay. I'm I'm not complaining, (laughs) but I I can talk about other people about, you know, disruption and innovation and route to market on that one. So so that's that. Uh, Very much to the point. Um, So um, predominantly, you know, people usually look at the past to try and infer the future. Um, We think it's nonsense. Uh, we think it's nonsense. We think it's nonsense. It's not surely, a way of putting d- it. Didn't they it? used to say that in the military, though? You know, when they used to plan, like, Napoleonic, you know, all these, these yes. wars and stuff. All, all the military always used to say, you know, the past will give you a clue as to what's going to happen in the future. And, and that, that, but that just isn't true? I don't, I don't know. I, I could see Sarah already sort of nodding. It's like, well, maybe that's not true. Um, I'll give you two examples. Um, you know, elephant in the room, possibly. Um, US election results and not Trump, um, Brexit, <laughs> recent weather conditions. Start with the small ones. Yeah. I can start with the small ones, actually. Yeah. So no, no pressure, obviously. No, we're global company already. Um, I don't see how any of these events... Well, A, they've never happened before. I think that's one, one immediate point. And then so... But this idea, well, we'll look at the past and, you know, based on that, we'll get a good feel about the future. And that just does not work. does not work. There is some pattern. There is some structure. So I'm not going against this. But, you know, as a principle, trying to infer the future from the past... Don't see that happening, so. So how does that balance out mm. with um, cyber security and cyber attacks? Mm. Um, you know, you have all these incredible hackers across the world who can launch their code, uh, indeed uh, being dormant mm. for many months or years in some cases. Mm. What's the counterbalance of that yeah. uh, in terms of the risk analytics? Well, I mean, very good point. You know, I rest my case. Um, I think it was uh, one of the top three US, uh, US credit agencies just got hacked last week. Looking at past data would not help you again. So, so that's that's all you know. So, thank you for making my point. But in, in all seriousness, um, all things being equal, it, it sort of makes sense. Well, what happened last time? You know, how how bad was the hurricane last time? How bad was the financial crisis last time? So, you know, you can get a sense of of, of calibration from the past. But uh, we don't think it's it's a methodology sort of moving forward anyway. So, so just going a bit sort of you know bit more about, about the company um, we don't use historical data uh, what we do is what we call sort of you know real time uh, and it is forecasting so it's, it's probably I think the best analogy is a bit like the the weather the weather show they don't predict the weather they forecast the weather and it's a subtlety but it is a very important subtlety because they already have the insights 
But there comes a timeline with yes. that, doesn't there? Because obviously you're looking at instantaneous things and fluctuations and that sort of stuff. Are you not missing mm. the sort of what we call historical data where you go, oh, silver does go up at certain times of year because people like silver at January or like whatever it is? Um, seasonality. There, there is possibly a bit of seasonality, but I think one of the numerous works we did, actually, one of the clients, seasonality sort of works until it doesn't work. Uh, so, so has it stopped working for everyone? Or uh, the gold, should we just do away with autumn? <laughs> wow, if you ask us, so the seasonality. Um, we don't look at the seasonality bit. We just, you know, back to the point again, well, who's doing what on the exchanges? Very insightful. Because uh, what people tell they're doing what they're actually doing. So what's your spectrum? Instantaneous, five minutes before something happens, does the tornado hit and you go, we predicted that four minutes ago? Or okay. how does it How, how does, does it work? work? <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we do have a workshop We're just, just going to write down the algorithm while you talk, so yeah. <laughs> but, um, we do actually run a workshop. Um, we're being very open about the algorithms. Uh, and that's what we found from one of our, you know, the numerous clients we have, especially large tier one banks, it's, it's not a black box. Mm -hmm. uh, it's what we call a, a gray box solution. So here's the technology, here's the algorithms, here how it's work, give or take. Do you want to buy it off the shelf or do you want to try and do it yourself? Most of the time is, well, we might as well buy it off the shelf. Um, it took a long time to develop. I can imagine, yeah. it, it took a very long time. So our team back in Cambridge, they've been at it for a few years. Mm. So back to the point again, well, you might as well get it off the shelf, basically. That's so so can, I, can, can I mm. do a scenario? So, so this, is, this has never happened before, I'm <laughs> sure. This has never, ever happened before. So we've got, we've got Donald Trump in America. Yes. I mean, every morning when I wake up, I think, oh, I wonder what he's done today <laughs> in areas. Uh, although, obviously, um, the, 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 the recent hurricane, um, obviously, is, is very important to sort out. But mm. in general, it's like, what has he done? This time. What's it going to happen? Yeah, so. so on the one hand, that's incredibly mm. unpredictable. And then on the other hand, you've got Kim Jong-un. Mm. I mean, both of them have dreadful haircuts, which I think is probably links them entirely. But, um, and, and so this Planning guy... Planning going to Korea. Should <laughs> the is that what you're saying? We should, well, no. Let's track the haircuts. Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, that might give you a clue to who's going to win elections. But yeah. um, so, so, um, so you've got these two very, very unpredictable mm. characters, uh, one might argue. Um, What's going to happen in North Korea and, and how gung-ho um, Mr. Trump will be is, is yeah. obviously a concern. But what you should be doing, I'm guessing, is looking at all of those different scenarios, trying to work out what is going to happen and actually how that would affect the markets, how that would affect your interest rates, how a bank mm. might deal with it. And, or, or have I got that wrong? Is well, that, that? We, we're going beyond that. We actually doing take, that and more. And we're doing more, actually. I have to give full credit to our clever guys in Cambridge. So they, they ran away from the big investment banks. They're mostly ex-Goldman Sachs, and, and they had enough of it. So they said, OK, that's it. We're going to do it ourselves now. Um, back to your point again, in all seriousness, yes, that's what we do. But the next thing is, well, great. Yeah, that's, that's what the model says. Now, what are people actually doing? How are people actually responding? And that is so much more powerful. Because your model, your assumptions can say A, B, or C, whatever. It's like, what are people actually doing? And unless you've got our software, which is essentially deep data, deep data, unless you can monitor those participants as individuals at the global level, you're just not going to know it. So, so what mm. you're saying is you'll, you'll come up with maybe three or four scenarios of how this might go. Mm. Uh, from from mm. this is the worst thing that could happen. This is the best yeah. thing that could happen. Um, and you might have three or four of those types of scenarios. And then what you do is you start monitoring behaviours mm. to actually try and give you a forecast of it, where, it it's gonna, where it's going to bottom out. Yeah, um, absolutely behavioural. Yeah, uh, that's that's you know back to the point again. Um, these are financial markets. Um, yes, a lot of participants. Things don't change. Um, I'm writing a book chapter, and I, I know you just finished a book chapter, Paul. So well done. <laughs> um, just finished that fintech book. Quick pocket. It should be out in uh, Q4 this year. Um, 
it is still Sarah, behavioral. you're going to have to write a book. You're, you're, you're going to have to write a book. You're being a little bit left out here. <laughs> but uh, it, is, it is behavioral. It is entirely behavioral. And that, that's what the book's about, basically. It's like just monitoring what else or what people are doing. We've had bubbles, crashes, panics in financial markets ever since the tulip. Uh, this was 1640. Um, even clever people like, you know, Isaac Newton got caught out. So things, you know, back to that point again. There is some repetition, but you know, in all intents and So I'm trying to drill yeah. down to what you actually do and what you actually ah, provide. Okay. You should be so, so secret, are you, source. Yeah. secret source, secret source. So are right? you actually? So so are you actually saying to people, um, if you work with us, uh, this this old Kim's like doing some nuclear stuff down yeah. the end there. We've got we've got a pretty good idea how that's going to pan out in mm. terms of the markets and then what you should be doing in terms of your planning. Yeah. Um, is that is that what you do? That's I think that's one aspect. Um, we don't get to involve operationally. No, no, no. You know, I, th- that. I think that's yeah, all yeah. that one. So, but we come up with the software saying, well, listen, um, here's sort of what's happening. We don't always link it back to politics because, ironically, uh, markets and politics don't necessarily correlate. Uh, so it's more more the scenarios like, well, here's what everybody else is doing. I was thinking if there was a nuclear holocaust, it might affect some of the markets, however. It might affect some of the markets, yeah. Um, That's an interesting one. Certainly maybe the number of markets. The number of markets. We would have have a software for that one too, actually, in terms of thing, actually. But uh, but yeah, no, back to the point again, what is everybody else doing? Uh, And everybody else will be moving the markets. You get large participants, you get large organisations starting to move their money. It will show up, and that's what we're detecting with our software, these large money movements. Okay. So is it just money, or do you look at patents? Do you look at what what other stuff do you look at? Money, money. So the the trade activity on the exchanges, who's trading, what type of volume, what type of activity. So we look at that entire trade flow which is a very big data problem. So it's a big data problem and it's a clever algorithms block. Mm. So well, this is just data, it's all just noise, you know, how do we break it down? And one of our clever software does sort of clustering. So clustering of people behaving in the same way. And that was back to the point again about the behavioral bit. So if it's purely random, it's like, yeah, whatever. If people start behaving in a very organized way, in a very behavioral way, we will pick it up with our software. Mm. And then when everybody starts doing the same thing, that's when you get the big market moves. But that does build up over time. Yeah, yeah. And, so it's and a sort of groundswell happening. The groundswell. Yeah. It, it's a bit like the analogy with the, um, the lovely analogy I always use, actually. So imagine hypothetically there was a, a drinks reception very soon. Um, there were, there's going to be a free vodka bar at 6 p.m. tonight. Well, me and Sarah will be there. And you and I. But exactly, that, that's my behavioural point. So you have, you know, you know something about it. You start behaving in a certain way and that crowd is no longer random because you and Sarah will be there sort of going a bit closer again and you might tell your friends and your colleagues do. So without it knowing, you will have a behavioural cluster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would be able to spot that. We would fish out of the day saying, this is not random. These people are not randomly mm. talking together. They're sort of going in a little cluster. They're moving in a certain direction. They're doing a certain thing. And that usually means one thing. That means, you know, something's about to happen. Something yeah. big's about to happen. And it would be if we were there. Now, uh, Debbie Forster, you're, you're a CEO of Tech Talent Charter. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about Tech Talent Charter? And, and, and listening to Steve there, it's important that we have a really good balance of all different sorts of people who can help us with those sort of risk analysis, isn't it? Absolutely. I think at the Tech Talent Charter, this is a group of employers 
who are tired of just talking about the problem and looking to a solution. It's looking across, and if you have less than 17% of your tech staff who are women and women in technology, then you are looking at half the talent pool and you're looking at half your user base are not part of those discussions. And that kind of problem solving with that dearth of of talent is is just not smart for business. And does that mean that the problem solving isn't completely in the round because in terms of cybersecurity, we were just um, discussing this before we went on air. If, if the huge majority of systems have been designed by men, then actually women will make the best hackers because they haven't thought about how women think and how women approach stuff. So in essence, that's a very weak area. Absolutely. And if you're going to get a hacker, get a woman. Absolutely. I would say. And it's a job opportunity I wouldn't necessarily recommend for all the women there, <laughs> no, but there, is, there yeah. is a job gap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think if you look across, it's security, it's health, it's Internet of Things, it's wearable. There's not an area in which we don't need to understand the whole user base, and that's women. And there's all sorts of fantastic stats that talk about the commercial edge that companies will have, the the strategic edge by that in the round understanding and we do talk about diversity in its fullest sense because it's not just women mm-hmm. but by tackling it through that lens it gives you a practical way to really think and moving it beyond one kind of person designing fixing working across the system and and um, i know uh, you know a lot of people might say well it's people being biased at the recruitment end although i know so many people who are trying desperately to get women to apply for jobs and they're not applying for them so if we can't get women to actually go into these areas and apply for them it's really difficult as an employer to employ women because they're not applying so so is that what you're finding at all and this is what's really important what we're doing at the tech talent charter is we're accepting the entire pipeline is broken and that's from early inspiration in schools that's for recruitment that's for onboarding retention return to work retraining the whole piece is broken and it's why we don't just have employers in the room on the tech talent charter is also the recruitment agencies it's also the organizations that are reaching into schools for early it's everyone working together stop focusing on the problem and let's start looking at solutions and i think the exciting thing that companies are doing is they're sharing what's working instead of treating it commercially sensitive yeah i can imagine yeah i mean because there are lots of other industries that face the same problem say 20 years ago and they've been able to overcome and have a far more diverse workforce which gives them better decision making you know better team working you know are there areas where you've looked and learned and and seen how that can apply there's some fantastic stats and part of what we do at the tech talent charter is employers are signing up that they're going to commit to do something about it internally but they're willing to share best practice and to share data so we can begin benchmarking and when we talk about tech we're not just talking about the tech industry So we do have signatories like Cisco, BT, HP, those sorts of that you would expect. But we also have Nationwide Building Society. We also have Global Radio. We have little tiny tech startups up to your multinationals. And they're sharing what works, whether it be changing your job descriptions, whether it's looking at how you use telephone interviews. It's what you do for coaching and mentoring within an organization. It's being willing to open your books, share what works, what doesn't work. And in startup fashion, hack it, try it, measure it, and pivot from there. And it's the industry, it's broken so deeply. The only way the solution can be found is if everyone's working together. Steve, um, in the Fire and Rescue Service, um, you know, 
Oh, no, it's quite controversial uh, because uh, quite a lot of the job is still physical and you need to be strong and all well, that sort of stuff. to a certain stuff. extent. But, so, you know. so uh, and I know you've you worked quite a lot on diversity yeah, uh, in fire sure. and rescue. Uh, what were the, I and mean, this was a little while ago, I know, what were the problems there? Because, again, well, because, I guess it's, with, it's, it's, it's the, perception again, isn't it? I mean, so, Debbie knows this. It is the core point is people see firefighter stereotype you know, guys stripped to the waist, muscles everywhere. Oh, well, really? Does yeah, anybody think true, that? Yeah. Surely not. <laughs> and we know that's not the reality because we have teams that have got... Well, look people at you, look, Steve, yeah, for exactly. a start. <laughs> so you've got people who are five foot four, people are six foot four, all different ages, all different backgrounds, and actually it's overcoming that initial reality. Because if you said to most young boys around who, who had a tech mind or would always say, I want to go into tech. Yeah. There's probably very few uh, females that would say, you know, that's what I see. They might say, I want to design something. I want to develop and something. The and, and in fact, we were unbound a few weeks ago. Mm. And actually half of the app developers were women. And it's if you start with this idea of talking to girls about what it does, not tech for its yeah, own sake, but the problem, it, the problem it's going to solve, helping them move from being consumers to creators to see that creative part in the problem solving that is at the heart of great tech. So is it about vocabulary then, in it's, some ways? It's vocabulary, it's, it's the imagery we show, it's being able to talk to both boys and girls. You need to normalise it across the piece. So when the 10-year-old girl says, I want to go into tech, the boys don't look across and think strange. You need to change the minds of parents. It's, it's a long process and it's showing the next step. It girls seeing the university grads. It's the university grads looking at entrants. It's the entrants looking at middle managers to really start getting a deeper, wider sense. And it's exactly what you say. It's breaking the stereotypes because sure. they don't do anyone any favours. No. So, Debbie, this this is a this is a hugely long piece of work, isn't it? And and not just taking little sections of it. And yeah. it's, it's, as you said right at the beginning, it's from end to end. And and I, and I guess you're going to be pretty patient because that's the only way to do it eventually, that that will pay off. And I think the key here, um, you know, 10 years ago, we weren't even talking about gender diversity as a problem. Seven years ago, we were still arguing that it mattered. What happened about three or four years ago is... I think we ran the risk of starting to reinvent the wheel. Lots of people out there trying to come up with solutions in isolation. What's happening now is we're about connecting the dots. So when I talk about Tech Talent Charter, we're not going to do it all. It's not just companies sharing what they do. This is Tech UK in the space. This is looking at the British Computing Society in the space. It's everyone coming together to go on that long journey together and connect the dots all along the way. So for you, what would success look like? I mean, that's you know, are, you, are you measuring or are you just doing some perception work? It's crucial. Because yeah. like I said, we're not looking for a magic bullet. There's not going to be one solution. No. And what we're very open about is each company is going to start addressing this problem differently. We don't prescribe what your plan is, but we say you have to have a plan. Mm. Data is the key. So what we're going to be doing is annually, all signatories are agreeing to give us data that is aggregated and anonymized. So this is not a name them and shame them. This is not a leak table. This is benchmarking that allows us to start looking and seeing where success is coming and for companies to be able to look internally and break through those those misconceptions of, oh, it's, it's this bad all over. No, they can see where those are happening. And by measuring that data, we want to see across the piece. We'd like to 
move towards whenever a company shortlists for a role, there's a woman on that shortlist, not who makes the final decision, who gets the job, but that women are starting to be in that room, on that list, and then we'll see that going across. But but, but isn't that sort of positive discrimination? Do do you think that works? Because a lot of people say... Well, from a female perspective as well as a male perspective, I don't want to be on some shortlist because I'm the token woman. Absolutely. So that's a really difficult thing to get around, isn't it? Because unless we do that, we're not going to get more people on there. We had a really great interview a couple of weeks ago um, where they were talking about a lot of their staff were saying, and this is the male staff saying, I'm not coming to speak at your conference unless there's, there's women on the panel. So, you know, don't ask me. And, and I thought that was a really interesting way of doing it um, because it was forcing the people who organise the conference to then get around it and realising that actually and, other people are noticing. And this is the push. And, then, you know, what I'm pleased, what I hated for a while is whenever you walked into a diversity thing, it was a room full of women. Where are the men? And so Tech Talent Charter is, is men and women. It's accepting when we say women, we don't just mean white middle-class women it's pushing across that whole piece and starting to say things aren't good enough it's why we're Mm. delighted that the recruitment companies are in the room because there's that there's that push back and forth the recruitment agents say what do we do the companies don't take them companies saying what do we do they're not putting them forward get them both in the room and by starting to measure the data you need we will force people to start looking and doing things differently looking beyond the old pathways of recruitment looking into different places thinking about women retraining thinking about moving across how return to work at peace so it's it's a long slow journey but an exciting one you know i think from a very early age women are presented with stereotypes and tech and engineering is a geeky male dominated isolated piece we've lost that sense of creativity of making of doing of those sorts of things and solving problems there's a lot in the press, and, and rightly so, of where the conditions for women are difficult. I think there's a lot of research as well around confidence. A lot of women, one of the areas is confidence and the, the mentality, the way that advertising of jobs, etc., for, for jobs is based on that big confidence and women step back instead of stepping forward. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think the pinnacle of engineering is probably Formula One. You're seeing actually quite a few women coming into Formula One, whether they're race engineers or engineers within teams and designers. Um, So that is happening, but it won't happen overnight. There's a slow move, and you do see it now. Uh, There's a couple of race engineers in Formula One that are female, which is, you know, the pinnacle of of, of, uh, the actual engineering side. And that's slowly coming through. And so they become role models. They become people that see that slowly it comes through. And it's not by... I think one problem is some industries, when they think they're going to go women, they do what we call pinkifying things and softening it. You know, it's not going to be hard. And it's not... It it is. And it, it just makes... I think for most women, myself included, it makes your blood boil and it puts you off even more. Embrace that there's challenge, but show women doing it. And then within organizations, really grow and nurture those women to take the next step. But I think showing that next step, showing women surviving, yes, women are going to want to go into sport, into driving, into those messy, great things. It's not about making it pink and pretty. It's showing how women can do it. Uh, Just explain exactly what Internet of Things is. Can you explain it in the domestic setting, but also industrially? Sure. Um, the Internet of Things is basically connecting up anything that's not connected to the, to the Internet today. So it's all the physical objects around us. And that could be from a smoke detector, could be to your toy, your car, to your industrial machine, anything. Any, any assets that's not connected to the Internet. 
Right. And in terms of what that means from a domestic point of view, that, that could be, you know, if you look at someone like Hive, um, British Gas and Hive, um, you basically install your little sensor or thermostat and, and you set that and um, you leave your house and when you get to into uh, within, say, two, three mile radius, uh, the heating will be turned on. So by the time you get home, you've got a nice warm house. At the same time, it will turn turn it off when, when you've left. So you're saving money. Um, that way, British Gas delivers a better experience. The customer's happy um, and, you, and you're saving money at the same time. And I suppose from an, from an industrial point of view, you know, the huge uh, opportunities. If you look at the wider um, Internet of Things, it's valued by McKinsey's between um, four to seventeen trillion dollars um, by twenty twenty five. So it's an uh, it's a huge opportunity. I mean, for me, my, I've got my light bulbs connected through Hue, whatever it is. You know, That's so a that gimmick. I, it's it a gimmick. just a gimmick. It's so gimmick. I can say Alexa, switch my lights yeah, on, yeah, sure. and I just get a bit of pleasure but, out of that. I don't know why, but there's something about it. I feel like I'm like God. Actually, but, I feel in control. Uh, Eric, the, the key to that is the light bulb manufacturer knowing how and when you're using them. It's the feedback, isn't it, from data. that device, the data that comes back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot of the companies, I won't mention names, but a lot of the companies who are involved in this today, actually it's a bit of a Trojan horse into actually getting that data and knowing exactly, seeing what spikes are taking place I've in the house. I've gone off it now. I've gone oh. completely <laughs> off it now. I didn't realise that they're, they're tracking when I'm in. Yeah. That's not a good yeah. idea. Is it? Well, they are. They must be tracking when I you're mean, in. Hive is probably the best way for British Gas to understand peak load and low mm. loads mm. because they're getting all that data back, aren't they? But what? Steve, I'm fine with that. What I'm not fine about them is, is what Facebook oh, yeah, and Google do know, is yeah. use it against you, yes. actually, to advertise yeah, or do I know, whatever. I, I don't want any of that. I might review my lighting Your light usage. Anyway, that, that aside, um, what's what's much more important, isn't it, is, is trying to connect businesses so that if you can imagine how much you would save in a, in a domestic setting, you know, if, if you organise yourself properly, just imagine what businesses can, can, can do, and, and particularly factories, I'm thinking. Yeah, absolutely. To be honest, it's, um, it's, it's every single vertical there is, um, from, um, you know, I'd call them the dinosaurs of the, the, um, in terms of, you know, finding new innovation in the insurance industry. To, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure in, insurance in, people will be thrilled to be called well, dinosaurs. <laughs> um, um, to health, to manufacturing, to pharmaceutical, to everything. Everything is involved. So um, I'm struggling. I, I can see it in a domestic setting. I can see examples in a domestic yeah. setting. But tell us, tell me a little bit about commercial. So, say for instance, healthcare. Are we? Is that everything from remote monitoring to operating a bed remotely? Or I don't. I can't sort of get my head around how, how that would work in a health setting? Sure, um, I can give a couple of examples. Um, so if you start with the insurance industry, because I think it's actually quite interesting because the insurance industry typically is very, very conservative and they tend to be the last to move. Um, but what's happened over the last couple of years, I mean, I, once upon a time I was a young driver um, and the insurance premium was a huge. So nowadays, um, basically, you've got some new players coming up in the industry who are basically putting a little box in your car, um, yeah. and through that box, um, they're able to ident basically identify how you're driving. Oh, God, so, please don't let me have one of those. So, no. the, so the advantage of this is that um, you get three calls, basically. Um, the first call is to you as a young driver. I'm often not, I'm not without being sexist, probably a boy, uh, who's driving like a boy racer. First call saying, if you continue driving like you are at the moment, you're likely to have an accident and you could even kill yourself. Second call is to parents. Third call is to cut you off. That way, they have reduced the claims by 30%. 
Um, they've increased the sales because actually they're attracting the right people um, yeah. and they're able yeah. to offer better um, better prices. Won't get you on that, least, Steve, would they? No, get your insurance on that. At least the, 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 yeah. the child is actually alive. Yeah, and that's why my daughter, when I'm driving her car, says to me, Dad, stop driving like a boy. Because <laughs> she said, I've got a black box fitted, don't forget. So I have to drive a lot more sensibly. Like a, like like a district nurse. When you're <laughs> yeah, driving her yeah, car. Miss Marple, yeah, Miss Marple, she says. Yeah, drive like Miss Marple. <laughs> so that's just one example. Another example is if, if you look at, um, you know, trains, um, you know, look at British Rail or Virgin Trains, etc. If you look at Trend Italia, which is the equivalent in, in Italy, um, they've gone from, you know, typically you take a train out of, of production or, or service, uh, you've got a, a certain slot when you service a train. Um, they've changed the whole thing to stick sensors on everything, everything to do with the train, and they go and proactively service it. The sales have gone through the roof because the trains are on time. Um, they've re- reduced their OPEX costs by 8%, which is huge, and wow. the customers love it because the train turns up on time. Virgin, though, still don't manage to have any hot water or make tea every <laughs> other trip I've ever been on. But um, so, so that's that's one example. But there's, there's there's other examples of how you interconnect, you know, from end to end. Let's say in a factory, so so that you've got you know purchasing coming in one, you know, say raw materials coming in, those being monitored in a much better way, and all the way through it being manufactured to deli- packaging delivery. And there's much more sort of interconnection, isn't there, uh, happening at that, that, that side of it too? Absolutely. And, and, and I suppose really the end go, um, goal from, from an internet point of, uh, internet or things point of view is, is to be part of a system of systems. Um, mm. So you can, you can take a tractor, you can make it uh, a uh, connected tractor. Um, you can add uh, analytics to it, so it's a smart connected tractor. Um, but then if you start plugging that into the, um, you know, the fertilising systems, for example, um, so how much fertiliser do you need? Yeah. But it's really when you plug that into the fertilising system and the watering system and the weather system and, and all the other systems, that's when it sort of comes to, uh, comes to life. But it's very difficult. I wouldn't recommend that anyone starts with that because you have to do it in yeah. really phases because otherwise it's almost like you're trying to boil the ocean from day one. Yeah, but but it, it can it's going to have a profound effect, isn't it? When people really get the hang of it, and I think what often happens with these developments is people do a little bit of stuff in their house and suddenly start to get it. So if you know that you can do that with your gas bill, you know whatever, then you have a mindset. You, you've sort of tamed it in a way. You've domesticated it in a way. Once people do understand it and tame it, it's then much easier for them, isn't it, to go into work and actually realise that it can have a real effect. Otherwise, it's actually quite difficult for you to sell, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's going to have such a fundan- fundamental effect. Um, in the Internet of Things is, is really one of the biggest enablers and, and digital disruptors out there. Um, when I first started um, in this business, if you look at um, John Chambers, who's the CEO for Cisco, he sort of said that 40% of businesses will be out of um, uh, business in 10 years. I was very sceptical. Now I believe that more... Every- what, just because they're not going to improve or yeah. f- use IoT for efficiency? Absolutely, right. absolutely. So let, get, let me give you an, an example. So there's, um, if you look at the um, people with breathing difficulties, um, traditionally they used to drag around two massive gas canisters. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, and, which is not great when you've got a breathing no. problem to start with. No. So what's happened now, if you, if you go back almost two years... One company or some really innovative new companies have come up with basically reduced that in size by probably about a third. So it's one third of the size. But it's got all the analytics on that. So they can, uh, you know, change the medication that's given to the, pe- uh, to the uh, patient based on how they are feeling. And all the information is then sent back to the healthcare uh, trust so they can monitor that. Now, that those companies who, who don't get involved and who might have that big 
you know, gas canister, they'll be out of business so quickly. It's such a big change mm. that's taking place. Um, and, and that will really that will be but, a big threat for many companies. One of the issues, though, that I find is that public procurement, so if you take the NHS or fire service probably and all sorts of others, is that the procurement documents are based on people in that public sector organisation knowing what they know yep. and not knowing what they don't know. Yep. And therefore, they're often actually setting um, criteria that are, are the old gas canisters, right? Yep. Now, we come across a lot of people who've done some amazing technical developments for the NHS, cannot get anybody to buy it because they're not specifying it, because they, they just don't know what's going on. Yep. So they're specifying the old criteria where actually there's huge amounts of technology out there and it's not being used. Yep. Everybody's screaming about, you know, we need to have more money in the NHS, what needs to be more efficient. But actually what's happening is at the procurement level, that they just they just don't even know what's going on. But yeah. isn't that because within public service there is always this focus on scale and lack of risk, and any Absolutely. great innovation yeah, comes from looking at small pilots with risk, with manageable risk, and then scaling upwards. Whereas too often we're forcing our public services to make big decisions, big procurement, and so they'll always retreat. But and we punish failure. Very, very strongly. It, it, that, that wasn't really my point, Debbie. I think what I was saying is, if you're saying like, we need a we need a home visit service, right? So, so here's the procurement document, and we need 50 people who go round, la 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 la. You know, that's what but you have to respond to. Whereas somebody will say, well, actually, I can do that with two people back at there, and then this will happen, and then if, if somebody's got a problem, we'll go out and we'll do the, we'll do it in that. But the document isn't written like that, so they can't even get on the procurement list, and so they're constantly. You know, I'm not, I'm, I know this is a generalisation, but they're constantly procuring the wrong thing. But I think uh, what I'm saying is because the thinking goes in wrong at that procurement level, right. because it's only thinking at the big scale, therefore mitigating against risk, whereas you need that second strand. We have these giant sledgehammers being thrown at walnuts where great innovation is going to need to build in that propensity to be able to go in at procurement level for those mm. smaller pilots to do proof of concept that they can then scale up. That's the only way you're going to break that, the back of that. I mean, that. one area where I've seen lots of change was dementia within yeah. the care of dementia and using technology to help people. And it could be everything from, you know, loss of appetite. So you promote appetite through use of timed uh, uh, smells. So people would, that would prompt them to eat. But linking in, in that to IoT is huge. But trying to get that adopted across the whole of the NHS is, yeah. is virtually impossible because people cannot get clinical trials it's too costly and it takes Very too risk long. adverse yeah yep. absolutely it's risk and the cost for private companies is huge yep. trying to get it, get it actually in front of the mm. healthcare professionals to actually specify well, one of the biggest challenges that we see in, in IOT is the fact that close to 50% of people don't know what it is and, and that, that's yeah. across public and it's come back to your point well, too it's got uh, a stupid uh, name for a start you know, public <laughs> and private so very much what we focus on is actually it's about educating the companies of what, what it really means. If you dumb it down and, and then really exactly. explain what it is and yeah. what the opportunities and what, what it entails. Um, because and, and it's not just um, a, a common mistake is that this is, uh, this is for the CTO, this is for the CAO. Absolutely mm. not. No. This is just as much for the demand generating mm. part of the organisation, the sales, the marketing, the operational parts. It's for all parts of business because actually that's how they will come together and, and develop it's a It's helping solution. people see that it's a tool. I think this is the problem. Once something gets plugged in, we move it into this other mindset. It's a magic bullet. It's something. It's something other magic that CTOs have to deal with. And we also got Aftab Malhotra, 
or AF, as I'm going to call it, <laughs> uh, from Growth Enabler. But you, you're you're into all sorts of other things as well. I know. Absolutely. I know. Um, this future of tech in business that, that we've just been talking about. Um, there is this one thing where we want. Obviously, we want to get more people involved, more diversity, more debate. Actually, about how important tech is. It's not just for techies. It's for everybody. Um, what's your thought on on some of the sort of FTSE 100 and all our biggest biggest businesses? How, how do you think they're doing? Uh, in this area yeah it's um it's a really interesting area simply because uh, that two years ago when i stepped out of the corporate and started to investigate this area i realized that um large corporations out there big businesses uh, large enterprises are going through uh, some serious change and most c-level executives are petrified now, i'm going to give you some data around this first what does c-level mean Sea uh, level corp as uh, so a chief something. So the, the people chief. who are right up there the decision in charge. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. The guys or the girls who are making decisions. Yep. So here's the thing. So I discovered this study a couple of years ago by Yale University, and um, this is what got me a little bit worried. So Yale University has been doing a longitudinal study. It's a time series study for a while now, and they've discovered that the S and P 500, so the largest 500 companies on the planet. Uh, their life expectancy has declined from what it used to be, which was about 67 years or so, to 15 years today. My and they goodness. expect that's going to start nosediving even further and probably hit single digits in the next few years. So if we take an example like Kodak, for uh -huh. example, you know, who are right in on the innovations of cameras and then became, you know, somebody who's selling cameras and then the digital age starts coming along. They're trying to adjust. They can't do it quick enough. And, and now they're dead. I mean, they're dead as a huge, huge company. Absolutely. And that would have lasted 60, 70 years. You're uh, saying that, that a, a big corporate like that could nosedive or is, is expected as an average to, to literally not exist after 15 years. Yeah, That's absolutely. Incredible. I mean, it's, 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 it is incredible. I mean, here, here's another example. So Blockbuster. So I remember using Blockbuster. In fact, my wife used to, I used to be their best customer because <laughs> I ended up, paying tons of money on late fees. I don't know if you remember that, and I was pretty bad at that. <laughs> and I, I discovered that uh, recently um, I was reading about Blockbuster. I spoke to some ex-employees. And these are the, the people States. who used to rent out videos? That That's ones? right. Yeah, you know, I the, remember. The, the blue and yellow. The blue and yellow. On every high street, practically. Right. Good, a good business, actually. Great, great business. Yeah. Unfortunately, a business that didn't change fast enough. But here's the problem. With a lot of these companies... Change means different things uh, at different phases of their growth. And for, you know, for Blockbuster, much like Kodak, their demise actually wasn't a technology or a digital problem. That's what a lot of people think it was. They had invested hugely in, in digital technologies, bought a few companies along the way. Their problem was a customer problem. So they realized, and it, it, it does link back to digital. So I was one of the customers who was making up a large portion of their revenues by paying late fees. And 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 the, what's bizarre is that Blockbuster's near nearing its death or its uh, dwindling phases, uh, a lot of their revenue was coming from those sorts of sources, which is totally anti-customer. And of course, they were very focused on the digital. Sh uh, they were focused on the uh, the outlets, the the retail outlet, rather than moving to digital. It's very bricks and mortar, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Very bricks and mortar. Um, Woolworths, another. A sad story. Um, Toys R Us still around, but not here. 
it's the definitely sh- on the deathbed, isn't it? Toys R Us. Yeah. I mean, you can, when you go in to one of their stores, you can smell it almost. <laughs> yeah. No, no, the, the, be- because the shelves are slightly empty and the staff are a little bit down at heel. But, and, and it's just got that feeling about it that it's, you know, it, it it's struggling. It's really finding it hard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think the other thing is, you know, this, this is not just the Yale study. I mean, there's a stat out there, and a lot of our research tells us that over 80% of these CEOs in large companies now believe that their industries will be substantially uh, different. They will change over the next five to seven years. That's a, that's a serious, um, uh, you know, stat. Then 67% of a lot of senior executives right now, this is a global stat, believe that the biggest threat to their business is lack of change and, of course, the digital economy. So there is there is a very different sentiment at board level today than there used to be. So, so they're actually, what you're saying is they're actually recognising that now as, 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 as opposed to pretending, you know, like King Canute, that the tide's coming in, but it'll be fine. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be able to set my throne and it'll go around me or something. Yeah, you can't, I guess you can't bury your head in the sand. Any longer, and I think this relates back to this earlier conversation we were having with Novros around uh, digital talent and the people inside your business. So, uh, just a few days ago, I was speaking at a large distribution company, it's a UK um, FTSE company, and the CEO has just come in to transform mm. the organisation. We've heard that before, right? So, the digital transformation of the business transformation, and there are thousands of people. Who've been in this distribution company? How hard is that job? <laughs> it's it's a tough gig, and mm. you know the the CEO has the best intentions in the world, and you know in this case he was very he's very focused on growth and future and skills and investing in people. But of course, the, there's another piece to this, which is um, a really a really dangerous part of change, and the urgent and this is around urgency. Right. So in the old days, we could take some time, we could upskill and we could run programs and initiatives. The pace of change is 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 accelerated to a point that it's hard for us to even predict uh, what's going on within our business, let alone outside of our business. So I'll give you an example. There are so we're talking about startups and digital and entrepreneurs and all that good stuff. There are 1.78 million technology startups in the world today. 1.78 1.78 million, and many of them will fail. 90% end up failing, but uh, that number keeps increasing because of populations like China and India and so on. Now, that's not the concern. The concern is um, over $400 billion has been invested by VCs in the last three years in these startups. $400 billion is a lot of money. You have organizations like SoftBank that have a $100 billion vision fund. They have a 300-year vision. They're spread betting, though, surely. Well, you know, if you look at their their 30-year vision, which is underpinned by a 300-year vision that Masayoshi-san, the guy who runs it, has put together, it's truly impressive. And he's investing in the future of humanity. He is not investing in one business model. And that mindset is prevalent. And there are numerous companies doing it. Amazon is doing it. Bezos is worth $96 billion today. This, these, haven't Amazon's, made a profit yet, have they? Sorry? I haven't even made a profit yet, have I? <laughs> no, I'm being serious, have they, they? They do make money. They reinject oh, okay. their cash into different lines right. of business. And, you know, it is a profitable company. How they deploy their cash, of course, eats into their, their net margins. Mm. But if, if you look at, um, you know, I think the other thing is that there is this whole shift 
in the most valuable companies in the world. In the old days, you had ExxonMobil and GE and all of those sort of household names employing hundreds of thousands of people. Today, Making things that you could touch and yeah, feel. Products, mm. you know. Today, the, the five most valuable technology companies in the world uh, have a, a market cap evaluation of 2.2 trillion. I mean, companies like... Um, Companies like Amazon are worth over 450 billion. I don't even know what that means. Uh, you know, Nokia in its prime wasn't that big. Mm. BlackBerry, Rim uh, was not that big. We're not really used to this stuff. This is this but, is. But, but you're, also, you're also mentioning companies that have almost died as well. So Nokia would be worth this amount of money, which was your point at the beginning. Yeah. You know, and and you know whatever. But now actually, God dear, they're, they're really struggling. Yeah, they are. They're not I at mean, the top of the tree anymore. <laughs> well, they they're hardly there. Uh, yeah. You know, as an organisation, there's been a lot of. My mum's that's my mum's phone though, so she's hanging on nicely <laughs> to the nine button Nokia you, that she's had since 1973. Great phone. <laughs> but I believe that Nokia just brought out their another handset, have they? Which has more battery power and it's old style, and some people like. like yeah, so... Um, but, but, but I'm sorry to interrupt there, but do you not think that's indicative of very old thinking? It's like, okay, well, let's buy another person that's exactly like us who just happen to be slightly better at it, rather than looking across the whole piece and saying strategically, what's it going to be like in five years' time? What's you know, How are we going to shape up? What are we going to do? What do we need? What skills do we need? What strategies do we need? Oh, I know, we'll buy another handheld company that's slightly <laughs> better than us. And, I, I, and, and I'm being very flippant, of course, but, but what you're saying is you've got to look at change because it's coming quickly and really look at it across everything yeah you do i mean i i think the you are right so nokia is doing a few mm. few things but you see um there's this there's this uh, the way i describe digital disruption uh, it's a little bit of fun so have you, have you watched game of thrones by any chance love it yeah great great <laughs> show a big smile on sarah's <laughs> face there so not that I'm talking about Game of Thrones, but but uh, everything is a, is a story of some sort, and there are three characters, you know, in the digital disruption story. And this is important to remember if someone's listening into this this show and podcast. The, the first is there, there is more than one person. I assure you, you find that. So um, the first is you have a choice as a business today, right? In fact, even as a government department uh, or an individual. You are either, number one, a disruptor. A disruptor is someone who's creating stuff, the innovators, uh, game changers, status quo, challengers. You can be a Darwin. So you see the change coming, you shapeshift, and you evolve. So um, starting off with um, Nervosa. So tell us about Department of uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sport, DCMS. What's the actual remit of that department? I know it's in the name, haha, but you know, what's the actual remit of the department within it, within government? Uh, so the remit for the department is that it is responsible for everything to do with culture, media uh, and sport. Um, and as you said, we have recently uh, changed the name to have a digital element to it. So traditionally, it has been responsible for everything culture related, museums, sport, the traditional. The department um, celebrated its 25 year anniversary this year has a number of armless bodies so I think traditionally everyone thinks that department it's to do with museums it's to do with you know um, the Olympics yeah. um, but it's a lot more than that 
So a government department then, um, I think it's the Treasury, isn't it? The Treasury has all the money that comes in from our taxes and all sorts of other places. And then it decides to divvy out that money to the different departments. And then those departments have a remit underneath that about what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to support. Um, and uh, DCMS, for, for example, then will have money where it supports you know, museums and libraries and the digital agenda and, and all that. So how does, how does it get decided how that huge budget gets spent? Uh, so we will have um, a, a, a portion of that financial money allocated mm. to us as part of the spending review. Um, and then when our ministers come in, we work with them to understand what it is that they would like us to do, what are their priorities. Very often we will have manifesto commitments that we have to look at uh, to deliver and we ascertain what that is across the department. And we are very much led by Secretary of State, her junior ministers, in terms of delivering uh, what we need to deliver for, to achieve the aims of the department. So whoever's got in at the election, who's the ruling party, mm. will have some commitments that they want to do. They'll have some ideas strategically about what they want to do with your department and the yeah. other departments. And then you as a civil servant who's a permanent member of staff. Yeah are there to make those wishes of the, the ruling government come true, in, in essence, so and yeah. help them deliver on what they said they would do to the electorate. Yeah, absolutely. We, we live in a democracy. That's what our role is. It's to advise the government of the day, what, whatever the government of the day looks like. Um, and we're there to help them devise policy options to say, if you want to achieve X, then you can do it this way, this way and this way. And really understand um, th their needs, actually, to understand what best will help them achieve uh, their policy aims. In terms of digital then, digital is a new addition um, to DCMS re relatively. What's the remit there? What, what, what's the department been tasked with doing? Yeah, so, um, I mean, digital is, uh, as we know, it's such a really important part now of the agenda. Um, it, we, we can't underestimate how important it is. And the department has grown in terms of its digital functions. We are responsible for digital policy at the heart of government. We have a minister for digital, Matt Hancock. And within that, there is, we, we used to be called the digital economy units within DCMS. And now it's um, the digital and tech policy directorate. And in effect, we have a, a, a remit to make sure that, uh, you know, we are the best country in the world for establishing your digital business here, for growing a digital economy. So we have that remit working very closely with other government departments about how you make sure that it, it is the best place to grow a, a digital economy. That includes talent. So my team is responsible for digital skills policy, working very closely with the Department for Education. So we've really expanded what that means for our department and the name was significant of the fact that half the people within that department have a remit for for digital. And and so exactly what does that what does that mean? Um, so you've got you've got a government department. You're trying to champion digital. Yeah. Are you trying to champion digital uh, so that it, it gets <clears throat> recognised in other government departments as part of their policy, as well as doing stuff you know out in the public and and, and trying to make things happen and trying to include business? Is, is it in government and outside government? It's it's definitely both. Yeah. So. Um, 
you know, we have a role there to make sure that in other departments, when they are developing any policies that are related for us, we work very closely with them. So building that brand for us, that this is the Department for Digital, is is both an internal government-facing thing as well as an external facing. Have a chat with HMRC, will you? <laughs> <laughs> so um. one of the things that you're talking about, this is um, really intriguing, is the relationship that you then go out to business. Mm. Um, and I've heard recently that you've launched something called the Digital Skills Partnership. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What, what is it exactly and, and yeah. what is the aims of it? Yeah. So um, when I uh, took on this brief uh, about a year ago, um, talking about civil servants, uh, they tend to uh, have various roles within within government. So within my 17-year civil service career, I've done a, a various things. But the reason I wanted to do this brief more than anything was because the skills part is really, really important, the digital skills piece. You know, it matters. It matters. I've got a five-year-old. I've got a six-year-old. It matters for them when they are growing up. um, And I really wanted to understand what we could do in this space. And when you look at the problem, uh, at one end, we have 11.5 million people who lack basic digital skills. At the other end, we know that we are in short supply of specialist skills, particularly around data scientists, cybersecurity experts. We'll probably need about another million of those by 2023. And traditionally, we focused on those two elements at either end, the most excluded, have we need to get them online, get them with basic digital skills, or those specialist skills. But actually, if you look at the scale of the problem, there's a whole chunk of people in the middle who are at risk of of getting left behind too. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we were thinking about, and a lot of people were saying to us, is you government, you have a really important role because this problem is huge. It's really big. And um, it is. And you can't tackle it on your own. But what you can do is you can get people to tackle it together more collaboratively. So the... The rationale behind the Digital Skills Partnership is lots of really, really great stuff going on out there. Um, People really want to help, whether that's industry, whether that's us. Um, And it's how do you you make the sum greater than the parts? How do you bring that together? So the partnership is really government convening everyone who wants to really tackle the digital skills gap to say, how can we play smarter? How can we do this better? Um, and one of the aspects around this is local, local digital skills partnerships. Okay. And I do think that's something that we in government haven't looked at on the digital skills agenda enough, which is how do you encourage uh, local communities, local leaders to determine what their skills gaps are and how they're going to be supported to fill those. And is that because it'll be very different say, in a rural community to an inner city community to, I don't know, there might be geographical differences yeah, and, and, and therefore top-down government, you can't just mandate what people should do in those communities because yeah. they're all very different. Is that, is, that, is that the thinking behind it? Yeah, I mean, you know, traditionally, of course, it's not a central government's role to come in and be prescriptive. And in fact, we don't want to do that. All we want to do is say there are some great pockets of practice around the country and why are 
some people doing it really well? Why are others not doing it so well? And can we have a role in trying to help others and say, actually, this is what great looks like. And if you do great, then we can come and help and, and support you. Um, some, you know, really interesting research about um, things that work at a more local level, actually for individuals or even for small businesses. If they're looking for help to upskill in terms of their own skills that they need, they're likely to want to come and talk to other people who are like them in their localities. And so I think there's something about that local piece that we've not done before, which I think we should we should be looking at through the, the partnership. And there you have it. Uh, I love having you on the show and I hope you enjoyed listening to them all over again. Thank you so much to my co-presenters, Paul Armstrong, Sarah Luxford and Rush Shaw. Don't forget you can download our hundreds of podcasts from techtalkshow.co.uk and we'd love to hear your thoughts via Twitter on at techtalkshowuk. I look forward to talking about all things tech again in 2018 and in the meantime, let's hope it's a great new year for you. Bye now.